You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Father, we thank you for your word, for the truths that it holds, for the encouragement that it brings. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts in a wonderful way today. You would encourage us. You would challenge us. You would give us purpose and meaning for our lives. And Lord, that you would empower us to carry out those purposes. We ask that you bless us now by your Spirit, through your Word, in Jesus' name, amen. On July 13th, 2014, just a few weeks ago, the Emory River Rats Association held a special day on Tennessee's Emory River. There was a watermelon seed spitting contest. How cool is that? And a hula hoop contest. And even a cornhole tournament. But the big event of the day was the annual belly flop championship. Apparently, the river rats take their belly flopping very, very seriously. First, pl- first place winner receives a hundred bucks. And this year's grand prize went to a young man named, and I'm not making this up, named Max Stout. What a great name for a championship belly flopper. Max Stout. For to make the biggest splash, to have the greatest effect, to leave behind a definite impression, a man needs maximum stoutness, does he not? As a matter of fact, I think all Christians can look to the belly floppers on the Emory River for inspiration. Not that Jesus ever wants us to flop in our service for Him. No, no. But He does command us to have an impact. He wants us to leave behind a definite impression, to make a splash on our world. And this is what this morning's text communicates. Jesus has called us to be salt and light. Hey, we need to shake and shine. We need to permeate and radiate. Hey, you and I, we need to sprinkle and twinkle. Jesus wants us to move outside our comfort zone and influence our world for Him. In Iona, Scotland, there is a chapel. And in this chapel, there is a communion table. And on this communion table, there is a chalice. And on this chalice are engraved these words. Friend, why are you here? And this is life's most crucial question. Why am I here? Now that I know God, why has He left me on this earth? And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus answers this question for those of us who are His followers. Our purpose on this earth is to be salt and light, to sprinkle and to twinkle. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. 
Now notice, Jesus doesn't say that we can be salt. Or that we should be light. Or that one day we will be salt and light. Oh no. Jesus says that we are salt and we are light. In Christ, we've already been transformed from clay to salt, from darkness to light. We're told in Ephesians 5, verse 8, You were once darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. The Holy Spirit lights a flame in the furnace of our hearts to make us light. He alters our spiritual composition to make us salt. We are salt and light. Now realize, in the Roman world, nothing was as significant as these two commodities, salt and light. Salt was extremely valuable. The Greeks called salt theon, which meant divine. Roman soldiers were actually paid with salt. In fact, the word salary, you know what it means? Salt money. Thus, a person not worth his salt is a person who really hasn't worked hard and earned his wages. Salt is also a preservative. And thus, when God spoke to David about the covenant he was making with David in 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5, he called it a covenant of salt. God's promises are forever, just like salt. You see, before the modern age of ice makers and refrigerators, nothing was as valuable as salt, except maybe light. For light was also a significant commodity. Remember, in Jesus' day, there were no electric lights. Lamps were fueled by costly oils. Wicks had to be trimmed. It required time and effort and money to maintain a source of light. It was a major endeavor to cultivate the light. And thus it must have stunned, absolutely surprised the disciples when they heard Jesus refer to them as salt and light. This group of disciples sitting there on the grassy knoll in Galilee, overlooking the the sea, who were listening to this sermon delivered by Jesus. This was a ragtag bunch of disciples. This was a motley crew of fishermen and tax collectors and the like. This was a blue-collar band of simple folk. And yet Jesus told them, You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. How they must have been shocked. Wait a minute, Jesus. But doesn't the light of the world shine from Athens, home of the great philosophers? Or maybe Rome, home of the mighty men, the politicians? What about Corinth, the capital of capital? Doesn't the light shine from the home of the rich and famous? Or even Jerusalem, the religious center of the world? Didn't light shine from Athens or from Rome or from Corinth or from Jerusalem? Well, not in Jesus' estimation. It was a shocking statement for Jesus to refer to these simple, ordinary folk there on the Sea of Galilee as the light of the world and as the salt of the earth. Jesus' own followers were the hope of mankind. They were the ones who were going to make a lasting impact on this world. And let me stun you as well. For if you are a disciple of Jesus, you too are the salt of the earth. And you too are the light of the world. You are God's means of changing this world. Now understand, when Jesus referred to his followers as salt and light, he was drawing a contrast. 
If we're salt and light, that means this world without Jesus, this world around us, is suffering from decay and darkness. You see, salt preserves, it arrests the decay. Light illuminates, it drives out the darkness. Thus, a dark and rotting world desperately needs both salt and light. And I don't need to tell you how great that need is today. We are living in perilous times, as the Bible puts it. This world that we're living in is corrupt. It's getting darker by the day. Just read the daily news. I don't have to convince you. Vice and violence run rampant. This world we live in is an evil place. And the Bible says that it's only going to get worse. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us, In the last days, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. The human race has been infected by a deadly virus called sin, and it's spreading. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says of our pagan world, Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The world around us is a spiritual graveyard full of darkness and decay. Hey, many of your neighbors, many of the people you work with have never lived in God's light. They've never experienced the life and the love that only Jesus can give. And that's why you're here. God wants you to grab their attention. He wants you to make a splash in their world. We are salt to this decaying world and we are light to this darkened world. That's why you and I need to sprinkle and twinkle. We're to have the same type of impact on our world as salt and light had on the ancient world of Jesus' day. You see, in antiquity, salt had at least four functions. First, it acted as a preservative. Second, it added seasoning. Third, it stimulated thirst. And then fourth, it served as an antiseptic. First, understand, salt acted as a preservative. Fishermen would pack their catch in salt until it reached the market. Meat was stored in salt. Salt resisted the decay. It prolonged a food's freshness. And this is the effect that a believer has on his or her peers. Your influence holds back the further deterioration of the lives of the people around you. It works like this. A son's rebellion is kept from burning out of control because he recalls the faith of his praying parents. They're acting as salt. A person with a distorted view of Christianity is forced to change their mind about Christ through the caring compassion of a believer who befriends them. A spouse sitting on the fence spiritually is encouraged to follow the Lord because of the faithfulness of their mate. An employer tempted by dishonest prophets maintains his integrity because of the presence of an employee that stands for the truth. He's acting as salt. He's holding back the decay. When we live our lives as followers of Jesus, we are holding back. We're resisting the deterioration of a deteriorating world. And guys, if you think it's bad now, just wait until we're gone. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 tells us, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The restrainer that Paul mentions here is the Holy Spirit at work in his church. 
And the only reason the situation isn't far worse in your world is due to the influence of the church. When Jesus raptures His church, when He returns to take us home to be with Him, trust me, all hell will break loose on planet earth. Today, it is the believer's love and faith and kindness. It is the church's stand for the truth that is holding back the rising tide of evil and maintaining for men an opportunity to be saved. Well, salt acts as a preservative. Second, it acts as seasoning. It adds flavor. I love grits. Even Waffle House grits. I still like Waffle House grits. But you know, grits are bland if you don't sprinkle a little salt on them. They need a little help. I like vegetables, but man, you got to have a little salt on the veggies. In fact, almost everything tastes better with salt. Salt adds flavor. It adds taste to our foods. When my kids were little, you'd hand them a pretzel. And, and rather than bite into the pretzel, they would lick the salt off the pretzel, you know, before they tried to eat the thing. They love the taste of salt. And this world that we live in is as bland as grits without salt, apart from Jesus and the joys of His kingdom. Hey, granted, sin comes in many varieties, but after you've tasted a few brands of sin, you realize it's the same old, same old. After a while, this world and its pleasures become tasteless and boring and drab. That's why the people around us are looking for a little flavor. They want some spiritual taste, and we can provide it. Hey, only spiritual pleasures can satisfy man's deepest longings. It was Cyprian, a man born in 200 A.D. to wealthy and cultured pagan parents. He grew up in a world where he was surrounded by luxury. Everything that money could buy was at his disposal. But one day he met a group of Christians Later, he wrote this letter to his friends. It's a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who've learned the great secret of life. They have found joy and wisdom, which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They're despised and persecuted, but they care not. They're masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. It was Christians who convinced him to follow Christ. In 1974, Christianity Today magazine published a testimony of a Soviet prisoner named Kozlov. This man had been thrown in the gulag for his criminal activities. And he writes this, While prisoners like myself were cursing ourselves, the camp, the authorities, while we opened up our veins or stomachs or hanged ourselves, the Christians, with sentences of 25 years, didn't despair. One could see Christ reflected in their faces. Their pure, upright life, deep faith and devotion to God, their gentleness and wonderful manliness became a shining example of real life for thousands. This Kozlov, too, became a Christian and a leader among the Russian church. Hey, your friends are tired of the same old, same old. Trust me, they are. They long for some real joy, some deep down happiness, something worth living for. Hey, something even worth dying for. And we are the spice that can put flavor back in their life. Just call us Old Spice. 
Christianity is 2,000 years old, but it brings newness to every generation of people. Well, third, salt stimulates thirst. Eat a bag of potato chips. Make a bowl of salty popcorn. You'll soon be dying for a drink. You've been to the movies lately and you, you ordered a tub of popcorn? Have you noticed how much salt they put on that popcorn? You realize they're not just being generous to you. You know that. They want you to eat that salty popcorn so you'll go back and buy one of those $10 Coca-Colas. That's what they're wanting. Salt generates thirst. And likewise, as salt, we are creating in others a thirst for Jesus. Our lives should be so attractive, so appealing, so winsome, that others will be pressing us for our secret. Hey, what makes your life so different? As Delilah asked Samson, what is the secret of your great strength? It's been said, you are writing a gospel, a chapter every day, by deeds that you do, by words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Are you creating in others a thirst for God? Sheldon von Auckland he makes this observation. The best argument for Christianity are Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Look at some Christians and there's no joy. There's no power. There's no enthusiasm about their life. You'd think they were baptized in pickle juice. <laughs> Maybe some formaldehyde. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said, I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls. There are more flies caught with honey than with vinegar. We need to be creating a thirst for Christ and the life He brings by the attractiveness of our own lives. And then fourth, Salt acts as an antiseptic. You know, I love the ocean for lots of reasons. But one is its therapeutic effect. Salt water, it heals the cuts. And it cleans out the wounds. And it soothes our sore muscles. And it revives our skin. Whenever we visit Israel, we always spend the night down at the Dead Sea. A body of water loaded with salt. The Dead Sea is 33% salt. Ten times the ocean saltiness. And because of its salt, people from all over Europe, they vacation to the Dead Sea to soak in its spas, to relax in its waters. And the salt water, it helps arthritis and a host of other ailments. It soothes and it rejuvenates. And likewise, as a Christian, we need to be as salt to other people. We need to have the effect of salt on other people's lives. We can bring healing to the folks around us. Our kindness, our caring, will suck out the harmful poisons in which they've been infected by sin. We can heal the world's cuts. We can clean out their wounds just by our own saltiness. As one man said of his Christian friend, I felt more alive when I was around them. Anybody ever said that about you? This is the awakening effect that we should have on the lost world around us. And yet, even though salt may be good for you, when if you sprinkle a little salt on an open wound, you know what's going to happen at first. 
Ouch. It's going to sting. And the same is true for us. As salt and light, we're a blessing to the world around us. But we're also an irritant, especially at first. Our first exposure to salt and light can be a disturbing experience. Imagine yourself asleep in a dark room. Someone suddenly flips on the lights. The bright light is blinding, isn't it? And our reaction is to scream, it's to cover up, it's to bring the pillow over our head. One author writes this, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It's then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. As salt and light, we should avoid being deliberately offensive. but We can't be afraid to offend. For there is an initial recoil to both salt and light. I'm afraid too many churches and Christians today are trying to be sugar and spice rather than, rather than salt and light. Salt is important, but so is light. A ray of God's light will drive out the darkness. It will reveal God's glorious truth. You see, our goal as beacons of light is to shatter the world's misconceptions about God. We need to expose the world's incorrect ways of approaching life, unbiblical ways. Light confronts the darkness. It doesn't compromise with it. Light points out the pitfalls and the perversions around us. It leads people out of confusion and despair into God's truth. Once a lady was asked what it was like to be a Christian. I love her reply. She says, it's like being a pumpkin. God picks you out of the patch, brings you in, and washes off the dirt. Then he cuts the top off and scoops out all the yucky stuff. He removes the seeds of doubt and fear and guilt. Then he carves you a new smiling face and puts his light inside of you to shine for all the world to see. Don't you love that? God turns us into jack-o'-lanterns and jill-o'-lanterns and donna-lanterns and beverly-o'-lanterns. You know, when our kids were small, our house stayed littered with Legos. I've talked about this before. And you know what a Lego is. It's an indestructible, plastic, sharply pointed weapon used against parents. And guess who stumbles over the Legos at night at my house? Yep, dead. The other night, just the other night, our grandkids were over. And guess what? They were playing with Legos. And I got up in the middle of the night, and I was walking through the living room, and I stepped on a Lego. Instead of hurting this time, I just laughed. I saw it started all over again. That's what happens when we step on a Lego. It hurts. They're sharp. And this is the way people without Christ live their lives. Their spiritual perception is pitch black. And their spiritual Legos laying all around them. They can't see the pitfalls. And it's our job as Christians to turn on the light. God wants us to shine His truth into their lives. Help them see the pitfalls and the, and the dangers that are there. You know, author Lloyd Ogilvie, he says the average Christian today suffers from what he calls, and I quote, reverse hypocrisy. Reverse hypocrisy. He explains the term as follows. This is not the hypocrisy of trying to be more than we are. It is the hypocrisy of trying to be less than we are. 
Hypocrites of the old order paraded their faith before men, while hypocrites of the new order deny their faith before men. We are so sensitive to being placed in a category, so aware of the criticism and ridicule of our contemporaries, that we refuse to talk about the central hope of our lives. It's a reverse hypocrisy. We're being less than what we really are. What a tragedy. Too many Christians today are hiding their candle. They are concealing their flame. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus sees the church as a seven-branch lampstand. But in chapter 2, verse 5, He warns us, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, if we fail to let our light shine, God will take away the opportunities that He would want us to have. If we're not an, e- not an eager witness for Him, God will put us on the shelf rather than use us for His kingdom. Rather than let the light shine into this dark and decaying world. Too many Christians today are being influenced by the world. Rather than being the influence or, they're being the influencee. This is tragic. Reminds me of the dignified preacher. He had a pet parrot. His parrot, though, had a terribly foul mouth. The parrot's previous owner had been a sailor. and Thus, the parrot had picked up quite a string of four-letter words. Well, this parrot, pastor, he, you know, he, he's a pastor. He didn't know what to do about his parrot. But he felt he had no other choice. And so one day he decided he's going to have to put the bird down. He's going to have to put it to sleep. That's when one of the ladies in the church, she heard about his dilemma and she proposed a last-ditch remedy. She too had a parrot. But her parrot was a female. And her parrot was an absolute saint. All day long, all night long, all this bird did was just sit on its perch and pray. This woman figured that her girl would be a good influence, would rub off, you know, on the pastor's parrot. He agreed. And so the next night, the preacher, he brought his bird over to her house and and placed his parrot in the cage with the lady's parrot. Immediately, the foul-mouthed bird embarrassed the pastor. The bird turned and he whispered to the female parrot, he said, Hey, toots, how about a kiss? But the lady was embarrassed most of all when her female bird jumped up on the perch, started flapping her wings, and joyfully squawked, Praise the Lord, my prayers have been answered! (laughs) The wholesome parrot was supposed to be influencing the wayward parrot, but the reverse had taken place. And too often, this is the problem that occurs with us. We're salt and light. We're supposed to be the influence or, but instead we end up being influenced. Shouldn't be. Jesus says that when the salt has lost its flavor, when it's been neutralized, when the salt no longer has its saline properties and has lost its impact, it gets thrown out. Salt that no longer acts like salt is useless. Jesus labels it good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It becomes nothing but road salt. Jesus also says no man goes to the trouble of lighting a lamp only to hide it under a bushel basket. A light is lit so it can shine. A city on a hill sticks out so that the lost traveler can navigate home. A 
A true believer will also desire to stick out for the cause of Christ so that others can find their way back. It's been said, a man with a conviction must do one of two things. Change it or spread it. If it's not true, he must give it up. But if it is true, he must give it away. He must propagate it if it's true or repudiate it if it's false. And this applies to us, to believers. If you're a Christian, if you believe the gospel, you'll let your light shine brightly for all the world to see. And notice too here, Jesus doesn't call us the light of the world. He calls us the light of the world. He doesn't call us the light of the church. Notice that. That means that we need to get out among people who don't know Jesus and let our light shine, not just around other believers. You know, it's been estimated that by the time a person has been a Christian for two years, they basically lost all meaningful relationships with people who aren't Christians. All their friends are now Christians. They spend most of their free time with Christians and hanging out at church and so forth. And in a sense, this is good. It's understandable. But it also cuts down on our usefulness. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. But for the salt and light to do its job, it has to be in contact with what it intends to impact and change. This is why we need to get out into the community. We need to be involved in the PTA. We need to coach the little league team. Years ago, I was criticized by someone from our church for letting my baseball coaching distract me from my church responsibilities. I was nice, as nice as I could be to that lady. But I told her she was dead wrong. I told her that coaching those kids was the most spiritual thing I did. It's at the ballpark I could sprinkle some salt, I could twinkle some light in a way that I sure couldn't do on Sundays. Keep in mind that being salt and light is as much what we do as it is what we say. We need to live in such a way that the folks around us who are observing our lives will be confronted with the error of their ways without us even saying a word. Notice verse 16. Read it with me. Let your light so shine before men that they may hear your good words. Is that what it says? No. That's not what Jesus said. Read it again. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Once a new convert was asked whose preaching had been instrumental in his salvation. He said, it was no one's preaching. It was my grandma's practicing. Grandma's life and prayers had said it all. I've heard it put this way. Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. It reminds me of Jim. He was an ordinary Christian who decided to get involved in his community. He, he got connected with a family of Vietnamese refugees that had moved into his area. This family had nothing. And Jim worked hard to find them some furnishings and food, even some friends. He even tried to find Sun Lee a job. Jim wanted more than anything to tell his new friend about Jesus. But the problem is that Sun Lee, he didn't know English. And Jim didn't know Vietnamese. Well, after a few months, Sun Lee had learned enough English for Jim to try to witness to him, but it was frustrated. 
And he was just about to give up when suddenly, suddenly blurted out, Jim, is your God like you? If so, I want to know him. Jim thought that he hadn't been witnessing to his friend because he didn't speak Sun Lee's language. But the message that, that he had to communicate had been coming through loud and clear through his good works. Jim had been communicating the gospel. His light had shined brightly through his life. Hey, many of us, we, we've been asking, we want to know, what can we do for Jesus Christ? We've been wondering, what's our ministry? We want a ministry so that we can minister. But you need to know, you already have a ministry. You are salt and you are light. Wherever you go, you're to sprinkle and to twinkle. Get out and mow your labor's lawn for no reason. Just to tell him you love him. Visit someone in the hospital. Write a letter to a prisoner. Help a coworker catch up on their work. The means abound. There are all kinds of ways that you can influence others. God can use you in a thousand ways to point people to Jesus. You know, in baseball, when there's a runner on base, a pitcher changes his windup. He uses a, you know, a full windup when nobody's on base. But if there's a runner on, he straddles the pitching rubber. And it allows him to keep the runner close to the base. It's more difficult for the runner to steal when he's pitching, quote, from the stretch. Well, once I was coaching some young guys, and my pitcher forgot that there was a runner on base. And so he was about to use his regular windup, which would have allowed the runner to, to run on to second. I saw what he was doing, and so I yelled out there. I said, Mike, don't forget the stretch. And I'll never forget, Mike stepped off the mound. He took off his glove, and he took his arm like this, and he started stretching his, stretching his arm. <laughs> it was pretty funny. But I guess both kinds of stretches are important. Well, this fall, I believe that God wants us to stretch. As a church, we're going to launch a few new outreach opportunities. This fall, we're going to turn our focus outward rather than inward. Next week, we'll announce a meeting for those who want to help us plan and mobilize for evangelism. As a church, I believe we can better use our numbers and our resources to strategically spread the gospel in our community. You see, a healthy church doesn't just grow up, it moves out. And I think it's time for us to organize some new outreaches. But don't wait on the church, please. You can start today. You see, the reason we don't have the impact we desire is not for a lack of opportunity. Our problem is a lack of faith to seize the opportunities that are right in front of us. This is why God wants to stretch our faith. God wants to open our eyes to the needs around us and to the folks next to us that we can reach out with His love. Nancy Jones died an elderly spinster lady. And when they went to engrave her tombstone, they couldn't think of anything noteworthy to say about the old gal. I mean, what had she done, really, but take care of herself and mind her own business? Well, finally, some creative people, they came up with a fitting epitaph. They put it on her tombstone. It read, Here lie the bones of Nancy Jones, for her life held no terrors. She lived an old maid, she died an old maid. No hits, no runs, no errors. <laughs> she didn't even get in the box score. 
In other words, she lived her whole life and never got into the game. You don't want to be that way. You don't want to live your whole life and have no hits, no runs, not even any errors. You don't want to live but not make a mark. Don't you want to make sure there's a trace you've been around once you're gone? That you played the game? That your life counted? We are the salt of the earth. And we are the light of the world. But are you being poured out? Are you shining brightly? Don't you want to sprinkle and twinkle? I sure do. Are we permeating the culture and the community around us with the truth and grace of God? Are we radiating the love and truth that's found in Jesus? This world we live in is dark and decaying. Salt will arrest that decay. Light will drive out that darkness. What kind of splash does your life make? Are you leaving behind any ripples? Remember the words of Jesus. You are the light of the world. And you are the salt of the earth.